Good morning, church. It's so good to be here gathering with you again. Um, like Pastor Matt, Matt said, I wish that I could say it's good to see you. That's typically what I say because it is good to see you, but I can't see you. And can I just admit to you that uh, this stinks? I wish you were here. I wish this room was filled, uh, not just with your presence while I'm delivering God's word, but also your voices um, as we sing. Um, I have to listen to Jonathan and Matt sing. So, you know, there's that. Uh, but we do, we, we miss this room being filled with the, the glad voices of God's people gathered together. Um, and so, man, we long for that. And I know that you join me in that longing. But Jesus is still risen. He still reigns supreme. The gospel is still true. And we have a hope that transcends any challenge in this life, including a virus and a pandemic and a quarantine and all of that. Uh, but uh, the words of the psalmist never rang more true for me uh, when he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Um, that would be a glad day. I know it will be a glad day for you as well. Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 25. Um, we took a, a bit of a week off from our study of Genesis last week during Resurrection Sunday, but we're back in that study today. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34, the second half of that chapter. Pastor Matt preached the first half of that couple of weeks ago, and this week we're going to be, Lord willing, finishing that chapter. Um, I've entitled the message this morning, Double Trouble, because it's about the birth of twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And so I, I've entitled it Double Trouble, because uh, if anyone would know, uh, Susan and I would, that twin boys mean double trouble. Um, Jonathan and David, they mean double joy, but they also mean double trouble. Love you guys. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. As you've noticed already in our worship, we're trying to include uh, more folks uh, from our uh, covenant family participating in the worship service, even though they uh, aren't able to gather here with us um, in, in person. And so uh, I'm going to do the same thing for our text this morning. And so I've asked Joe McBee to read from Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures as Joe reads. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body, like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright, now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him, and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe, for reading the word this morning. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you so much for your word. And whether we are gathered together physically or not, it is still um, your inspired word. It is your very breath. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask, Father, in faith this morning that you would do with your word what only you can do. And that is to uh, draw unbelievers to yourself and to deepen our faith and trust in you and give us a greater appreciation for the grace that you have extended to us in Christ. We pray that you'd speak to us through your word this morning and make us look more like Christ. Draw our affections to him such that you are glorified through us. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage of scripture, Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34, can be broken up into four sections. And I want to use these four sections as kind of a roadmap as we go through this passage of scripture. First of all, verses 19 and 20, the first two verses, are kind of a recap of where we are in the Genesis story. And then the next three verses, 21 through 23, is really all about um, Rachel's, uh, or excuse me, Rebecca's pregnancy and her conceiving the twins. Um, the next few verses, verses 24 through 28, um, are all about the birth of the twins and their uh, young life together and uh, what transpired there. And then we'll close out the chapter in verses 29 through 34 uh, with this um, amazing story of Esau and how he sells his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. So first of all, verses 19 through 20, this is a, a bit of a review for us. It brings us up to speed. Moses has given a recap at this point of where we are in this story. And so he tells us, these are the generations of Abraham's son, Isaac. And so um, the first part of chapter 25 that, that Pastor Matt covered for us a couple of weeks ago dealt with both the death of Abraham as well as the generations of, Ab of Abraham's son Ishmael. 
And so that was Abraham's other son, the son through Hagar, the Egyptian slave. And so now he's turning a corner and he's saying, these are the generations of Abraham's son, Isaac. And so we're reminded here that Abraham had a son, um, Isaac, the child of promise. We, uh, that brings us back to the story from chapter 21 and, and how uh, that was such a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and Sarah that, that I, Isaac was finally born. Um, and then we're told in verse 20 that Isaac marries Rebekah. He marries Rebekah when he's 40 years old. And so this takes us back to uh, the previous chapter, chapter 24, where Abraham, Sarah has, has, has already died. Um, his wife has already died and he's getting old and he needs to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And so he, he knows that he doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite. And so he sends his lead servant back to his homeland, back to his father's house and to, to find a wife for his son, Isaac, from there. And there's this miraculous story of the servant as he's praying for God's guidance to find a wife for his master's son. And before he even finishes praying, Rebecca shows up at the well right where he is. And we're introduced to, um, to Rebecca's, sister, uh, Rebecca's uh, brother, Laban, uh, as well as Rebecca's father, Bethuel, both of whom are, are referred to here in the first couple of verses of what we're looking at this morning. Uh, they both give consent for Rebecca to go back with the servant. And when she gets back to the land of Canaan, um, Isaac receives her and they get married. Um, by the way, we have uh, an upcoming uh, marriage in our church. Uh, Trent Rexroth and Rachel Scott um, got their marriage license this week. And so they are soon going to be tying the knot. Uh, won't be having a public um, uh, wedding ceremony during this time, but are going to be doing that in a private ceremony. So we're praying for them. But so uh, Rachel and um, uh, excuse me, uh, Rebecca and Isaac, these names all get kind of convoluted, I know. Uh, but Rebecca and Isaac get married. And then we move on to the second section, verses 21 through 23 where we're told about Rebecca's pregnancy. Now, these three verses cover a time period of, of over 20 years, and so there's a lot that's happening here. Verse 21 opens by telling us that Isaac's new bride, Rebecca, is barren. She can't have any children. And so that recalls to us the story of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her how she was barren. She couldn't have children either. And so just as with Sarah in that story, if Rebecca here in chapter 25 is going to have any children, then it's going to take a miraculous supernatural work of the Lord to cause that to happen, to give her a child. And so Isaac recognizes this. And so he prays about it. He prays for his wife, Rebecca, for her because of her barrenness and we're told that the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca his wife conceived now what are we to learn from this well this is not a, a main point of this passage but I think it's helpful for us to uh, to point out at this point um, some 
part of what this means for us in our prayer life and what it doesn't mean in our prayer life. Uh, does this mean the fact that, that Isaac prayed for his wife to get pregnant and she got pregnant, does this mean that we can, uh, that, that God will give us whatever we ask for when we pray for it? Well, it depends. It depends on if we are asking for something in accord with God's will, then yes, he is, he will. Um, but if we're asking for something that's not in accord with his will, then he will not. Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Like literally, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus tells us to ask for what we want. He, he tells us to ask. In fact, James will, will, will later tell us you don't have because you do not ask. And so we're told to ask um, and we're told to ask, but the promise of John 15, seven, that it will be done for you. That promise is conditioned on the first part of that verse. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, it will be done for you. So there's two conditions there. If we're abiding in Christ and his words are abiding in us, if we're walking with Jesus, if we're learning to love Jesus more and, and follow his way, and, and, and if we're feasting on his word and learning in his word, then he will be changing us from the inside out. He, he, he will be transforming us to look more like him, to look more like Jesus. And in so doing, our wants and our desires will more and more increasingly be aligned with his will so that when we ask what we want and what we desire, it's in alignment with his will and it will be done for you as John 15, seven says. So then we might ask then, well then why do we pray? Right, if God's going to do just what he wills, then why do we pray at all? I think there's three reasons why we pray, and, and specifically I'm talking here about our petitions that we bring before God and ask of Him. That's not the only um, aspect of prayer that we engage in. Of course, we engage in worship through prayer, we engage in adoration through prayer, in thanksgiving through prayer, in confession and all of that. But particularly, when we're bringing requests to God, when we're asking Him for something, when we're beseeching Him for something, bringing a petition to Him, I think there's three reasons why we should do that. First of all, we're commanded to. He tells us to. He tells us that we should bring our requests to him. But secondly, it demonstrates our dependence on him. That we recognize this thing, whatever it is, this help that we need, this provision that we want, that we need, that we desire, could only come to us by the hand of God. It's an admission that we need his help that we are dependent on him for his assistance. But thirdly, and most specifically for what we're talking about this morning in this part of the passage, prayer, a third reason why we should bring our petitions to him is because prayer is the means by which God brings his help, his blessing, his provision to us. Prayer is, is the God-ordained channel or means by which he brings us that help that we're asking for. 
So God ordains the help. He ordains the blessing. He, he sovereignly ordains the provision that he gives to us, but he also sovereignly ordains the means that he uses to give that to us. And that means is prayer. So I would argue that God ordains, in fact, even your prayers. And then it is at the impulse of your God-ordained prayer that then God moves and chooses to bring the provision. It is at the impulse of our God-ordained prayers that then moves the hand of God. So church, pray. Pray for what you want in accord with God's will as best as you know it. In, in accord with God's revealed will as best as you know it. And if your prayer is in fact in accord, not just with his revealed will, but his decreed will, then it will be done for you. So here in verse 21, um, Isaac knows the will of God. He knows the promise of God. He knows that he is the child of promise from his father Abraham. He knows those promises. And he knows that the promise must continue now through him. And so he prays for his barren wife. And clearly this is in accord with, with God's will of decree for the promises to make Abraham into a nation that through him a, a nation, a great nation would arise and that through that nation all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And so this is in accord with God's will of decree. And so in response to his prayer, Rebecca gets pregnant. Now, before we move on from this, again, lest we walk away from this story with some kind of image of God as some kind of spiritual vending machine where we put our thing in and outshoots what we want from the bottom, we ought to notice here that in verse 20, we're told that Isaac was 40 years old when he marries Rebecca. And then later in verse 26, we're told that when the twins are born, he's 60 years old. 20 years have passed. Isaac has remained persistent in this prayer for 20 years. What have you prayed for persistently for 20 years? Isaac prayed for his barren wife. 20 years of barrenness, 20 years of childlessness, 20 years of disappointments and discouragements and yet he remains persistent in prayer. And by the way, he doesn't take any of the shortcuts, at least it's not in scripture that he takes any of the shortcuts that his father Abraham took when he was promised that his barren wife would have a child. And, and so um, he doesn't take any of those. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. In fact, Isaac is known as the only one of the patriarchs of Israel who is monogamous. It's just he and Rebekah for the whole time. And so he persists in prayer for his wife's barrenness for 20 years. And then in God's perfect timing, she gets pregnant. But right from the very beginning, we see that there were problems with this pregnancy. There were challenges with this pregnancy. Verse 22 tells us that the children struggled within her. And so that, that word uh, children is plural, obviously. So that tells us that there was more than one child that was in her womb. And so that was a challenge in and of itself. 
In just a moment, we're going to find out that they were twins that were inside of her. So twin boys, double trouble again. And the trouble at this point is that they were struggling within her. That, that, that word struggle in, is a Hebrew verb, which means to oppress or uh, to crush. And so these twin boys were literally crushing one another inside the womb. The, the word picture is that they were, they were fighting with each other inside the womb. Think about that. Before they had even been born, sibling rivalry had already taken root. The conflict between these two boys that would come to define their relationship and would also dominate the theme of the book of Genesis from this point all the way through chapter 35 had already started and they hadn't even been born yet. Double trouble indeed from the very beginning. Now apparently this struggling in her womb was painful and uh, this was this caused great suffering for Rebecca. And so she says in verse 22, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? The literal translation of what she says there is, why am I? Like, why do I exist? Not just why is this happening to me, but, but why am I? It's almost as if it's wondering, would it be better if I were not even alive? So this was a great suffering for her and pain for her and discomfort for her. And so she brings this need before the Lord. She inquires of the Lord. Now, some think that what she does here is she consults a prophet and that the prophet then brings back to her the word of the Lord. That's not in the text here. All we're told is that she inquires of the Lord. And then in verse 23, the Lord responds to her and answers her question. Why is this happening? He explains what's going on. Look at verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So he, the Lord tells her, tells Rebecca, these babies that are inside of you are not just two people. They are two nations. And they're struggling with one another inside of your womb is pointing to the fact that they will struggle with one another, both them as well as the nations that they give birth to will struggle with one another throughout their entire lives and even beyond that. And we see that uh, in the book of Genesis. We, we, we see that continue, uh, that uh, the, the, the one is stronger than the other. Esau gives birth to the nation of the Edomites. Later, we'll see that his name is changed to Edom. And, and, and the nation that he gives birth to is the Edomites. Jacob, later um, in Genesis, his name gets changed to Israel. And so he is the namesake for the nation of Israel. And so they are two nations inside of her. And the Edomites were much smaller than the Israelites. And the Israelites, whenever they needed someone to kind of beat up on, because they got beat up on by a lot of other people, they would always go out and battle against the Edomites and destroy them. And so uh, one was definitely stronger than the other. But this prophecy about the twins in verse 23 closes with this very unusual statement. It says, the older will serve the younger. 
which was a reversal for the cultural norm of that day, where the firstborn would receive a, a double inheritance from the father, from the parents, and as a result of their double inheritance, they were also given the responsibility to be the ones to carry on the family and to give leadership to the family after the father had passed away. But here the Lord tells Rebecca that for these twins inside of her, this is going to be reversed. And the older will serve the younger. The firstborn will actually serve the secondborn. Now, we know that when the Lord gives this prophecy here, that the older will serve the younger, that he's not just looking into the future and he sees, oh yeah, Rebecca, the older one is going to serve the younger. He's not just looking into the future and, and, and seeing what's going to happen. He, he's, he's actually saying what he's going to cause to happen. He's revealing his will of decree in this regard. In other words, the, the Lord is not just saying what will happen. He is saying what he wills to happen. That the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is not explicit here in the Genesis text. I think it's implied in how um, the Lord gives this prophecy that the, the older shall serve the younger. But it is made explicit in the New Testament. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is giving his classic argument for God's free and unconditional selection of some unto salvation, unto eternal life, to be his children to be his spiritual offspring. It's known as the doctrine of election. Now, uh, the doctrine of election gets a bad rap. Um, a lot of people today don't like the doctrine of election. A lot of it is based on a misunderstanding of what it actually is. We think of election today. We think of, for example, uh, electing a president. Uh, we do that by voting for the one that we think is the best that has the most credentials, that is the smartest, or whatever criteria that we use. But that is not the idea of election that God uses and that, and that the Apostle Paul lays forth in Romans chapter 9. But part of what he does in Romans chapter 9 is he references the Jacob and Esau story as an illustration of God's free and unconditional election. His sovereign choice of some to salvation. So here's how he makes the argument in Romans chapter 9. The context of Romans chapter 9 is that Paul is talking about how um, so many of the Jews, so many of the Israelites of his day were rejecting the Messiah. God had sent the Lord Jesus. God had sent the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one to redeem his people. And yet so many of the Israelites, most of the Israelites of Paul's day were rejecting him. And so Paul says in verse six of Romans nine, he says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, when somebody says to Paul, hey, Paul, hasn't the word of God about the Israelites failed? Hasn't God's promises to Israel failed? 
Because after all, he said he was going to save his people by sending the Redeemer, by sending the Messiah, and yet so many of them are rejecting him. So hasn't the word of God failed? Paul says, no, the word of God has not failed because not all who are Israel, not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel are Israel, he says. Not everyone who is physically descended from Abraham is actually a child, an offspring of Abraham. And then in this Romans 9 passage, Paul gives two biblical examples of how God sovereignly, by his sovereign grace, unconditionally selects some and not all. He gives two biblical examples of that. And both of these examples are from Genesis. The first example is that of Isaac and Ishmael. Look at verses seven through nine. He says that not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. In other words, both Isaac and Ishmael were physical descendants of their father, Abraham. And so they were both offspring in that sense. But the true spiritual children of Abraham come not through the flesh, but through the promise, as Isaac did. Then he gives the next example, and that is the example of Jacob and Esau. Look at verses 10 through 12. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. So, so you see what Paul is saying there in those verses. Paul is saying that the, the reason it is said to her that the older will serve the younger, back in Genesis 25, verse 23, is a direct, direct quote from that. The reason why that is said to her is to prove that the purposes of God will stand. God's electing purposes, his sovereign purpose of election in choosing Jacob and not choosing Esau. And so what Paul is doing here in Romans 9 is he's given commentary on Genesis chapter 25. That the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis is a picture of God's electing work. It's prophesied about in, in those verses. It's prophesied about that, that, that the older shall serve the younger. But in a few verses, what we'll see is an actual display of God's sovereign election of Jacob and not Esau. But before we get to that, uh, let's take a moment to, to hear Moses as he describes these twins in a little bit more detail uh, in verses 24 through 28. So first of all, we had the recap. Second of all, we, we, we discussed the, the conception of the twins and the pregnancy and them being in the womb. 
So now in verses 24 through 28, we're going to meet them. They're going to be born and we're going to see them in their early life as young boys. And we're going to see the differences between them as Moses describes them first in their birth when they first come out of the womb and then as young boys later. So in verse 25, we're introduced to Esau. We're told that uh, the, the first twin comes out and we're told that he's all red, which is odd. He was red. Uh, and his body, we're told his body, all his body was like a hairy cloak. Now just imagine that for a moment. All of our boys, all four of our boys came out with a full head of hair. But not a one of them came out with hair all over their body. I mean, that's just, that's just, just weird. We had, a, we had a, a, a child born in the church this week. Beautiful, precious little uh, Abigail Ruth Beckler. Uh, and we're so excited for the Beckler family um, and uh, this new joy that's in their life. Uh, and I saw the pictures of her. She was, she, she is precious. She is beautiful. She is cute. Uh, Esau was not, right? So Esau was red and his entire body was like a hairy cloak. And so they named him Esau, which by the way, in Hebrew means hairy. I, I'm not making this up. This is interesting. Uh, the second born comes out and we're told that he comes out holding on to the firstborn's heel. And, and so they call him Jacob and Jacob means literally it means heel holder, which is a euphemism for, for cheater or, or supplanter, one who wants to take the place of the other. And so it's very interesting that Isaac and Rebecca named their children after the physical characteristics of their infants. Um, or after what they do shortly after they're born. Um, so, uh, you know, I probably would have been called at my birth, I would have been called fat face. Um, a lot of our boys probably would have been called, um, I, I don't know, screamers, like, like most kids. Um, uh, little Abigail would be called cutie pie or precious or something like that. But, but they, they call uh, Harry, Harry, and they call Jacob um, uh, heel holder which is just odd. Um, in verse 27, we're told that as Esau grew up, he became a skillful hunter and a man of the field. And when Jacob grew up, we're told that he became a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, we need to be careful how we understand that because some have read into that, that that means that, okay, so Esau was a manly man, and I guess Jacob was just a sissy, right? So Esau was hairy and he was coarse. He was a hunter. He was a man of the field. He was a man's man. And, and Jacob was more like a mama's boy. He hung out in the kitchen and he liked to cook. Well, that very oversimplified understanding of these two boys does not um, hold up to the scrutiny of the remainder of the biblical account here in Genesis about them. Because in chapter 27, we will find out that Esau also likes to cook. That's what his father wanted, right? His father, Isaac, wanted him to make a meal, wanted him to go out and hunt and, and, uh, and, and kill some kind of wild game and then bring it home and prepare it and to make a meal with it, cook with it. Uh, maybe it was more barbecue, I don't know, but um, he also liked to cook. And then Jacob, as we'll see in a few chapters, uh, Jacob was an accomplished herdsman. 
He, he, he herded cattle and, and sheep. He was a rancher. And so when it says that he was a quiet man and he dwelled in tents, what that means is that he took, a, took more of the traditional role of a nomadic herdsman. In fact, like his father Isaac and like his grandfather Abraham, he took a more active responsibility in the family business while Esau was out hunting wild game. But Jacob was back raising farm animals. So to conclude that Esau was manly and Jacob wasn't is just a misunderstanding, a misrepresentation of the text. So, so in these verses, Moses is telling us some things about the boys, um, Rebekah's and, and Isaac's sons, and he's using this introduction to these twins to really set the stage for the climactic events of chapter 27, which we'll get to in just a couple of weeks. And, and really setting the stage for this future life of conflict that exists between them, uh, as we'll see laid out all the way through chapter 20, uh, 35 of Genesis. But then in, in verse 28, we see that this, this sibling rivalry, this conflict between uh, Jacob and Esau that first shows up in the womb and then in their birth and then continues into their young adult years that this conflict also extended to their parents, to mom and dad. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so there was some very clear favoritism that was going on in this family. Um, we're told that um, Isaac loved Esau, um, and at least he has a reason for it because he liked to eat the, the, the game that he hunted and, and prepared for him. Uh, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And so um, this was extended to mom and dad now. And this is just going to add fuel to the fire of the sibling rivalry that already exists between Jacob and Esau. And we'll see all of this played out, including the favoritism of the mom and dad. We'll see that played out in chapter 27 as well. Now, this last section of chapter 25, verses 29 through 34. So we've seen the recap. We've seen uh, the, uh, the pregnancy. We've seen the birth and the young adult years. Uh, and now in verses 29 through 34, we have this amazing story of the birthright of Esau being sold. So I want to just remind us of this, this passage and read uh, these closing verses, um, verses 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. That's where his name gets changed from Esau to Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Um, commentators are split on whether or not he was actually about to die. I think this was just him just being melodramatic in his own way. I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised or 
respected not at all his birthright. So in that story, neither Esau nor Jacob look very good, right? They, they, they both are presented as uh, flawed individuals. Um, and in each of them, we see examples of how not to act. Consider Esau, first of all. Esau is letting his appetite for food be the driving force of his life. And he has no discernible consideration whatsoever for his spiritual needs and his spiritual obligations. Instead, he's just concerned about the physical and the material. Commentator Larry Richards says this about him, that Esau was a man who valued the present rather than the future. The material rather than the invisible. The momentary satisfaction of physical desire seemed more important to him than the approval of God. The body, not the spirit, dominated his scale of values. Now, I think we, should, we would do well to remember that we live in a very materialistic society, and so I think we, we should uh, pause before casting too many stones at Esau. We probably ought to be asking ourselves, have we been tempted by the temporal and the physical over the eternal and the spiritual? Have we been tempted to seek material prosperity before and above spiritual prosperity? Esau's example is a reminder to us to examine our hearts in this regard. So Esau is not an example for us to follow in this closing passage of 20, Genesis 25, but neither is Jacob in this closing vignette. What do we see in Jacob here? Well, we see him living up to his namesake, right? Supplanter, deceiver, usurper. He's manipulating and conniving in order to get something that doesn't belong to him. Namely, his brother's birthright. And by the way, I think the fact that Jacob is presented to us in such a negative light in this passage, to me, this gives further evidence to the reliability of Scripture. Think, think about it for just a moment. Jacob, whose name would later be changed to Israel, he is the namesake for the chosen people of God. He is the namesake for the Israelites. Now, if you were going to just come up with a story about the beginning of a religion, would you include this story about the one for whom that religion is named and all his, all his sin and all his stories like this? Would you include stories like this to show how messed up he was and how he sinned? But all of the Bible's heroes, all of the Bible's heroes, except for Jesus, were also sinners. And I love the fact that the Bible doesn't whitewash them for us. It just presents them to us, warts and all. Couldn't be made up. If it was made up, then stories like this wouldn't have been included. But the other thing that this presentation of Jacob here as a sinner does for us is that it reminds us that God's selection of the older to serve the younger 
back in verse 23, was not and could not be based on the fact that Jacob was a better person, that he was more moral, because he wasn't. He's not. He's a sinner, just like his twin brother. And so apparently, God's selection of him instead of his brother was not based on anything about him, but instead based on God's sovereign and unconditional grace. As Paul said in Romans 9, what we read earlier, he says, when Rebekah had conceived children, two children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither it done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So God didn't choose Jacob because he was good. But later, as we'll see, Jacob became good because God had chosen him. As I think about how to apply a, a narrative passage of scripture like this one before us this morning, I think there could be multiple kind of uh, many applications. I, I think we could uh, look at Isaac and Rebekah and how they gave themselves to the Lord in prayer, uh, both in petition and inquiring the Lord for what's going on. Um, I think we can take a cue from that to develop a, a life of prayer during this season. I think we can look at Esau and Jacob and, and learn how not to act, specifically with Esau, to be careful about letting our fleshly appetites and desires take precedence over our spiritual needs and spiritual obligations that we should delight in Christ above all else. But to me, the primary application of this passage of Scripture is that if, if the Lord has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus, if, if, if God has rescued us from what we deserve by His sovereign grace, through our faith and believing in Jesus and His, His death and burial and resurrection for us in our place, then we ought to be humbled and we ought to be grateful that he has sovereignly and unconditionally chosen us to, be, to belong to him. Not because of anything about us, not because of anything that we have done or will do, but simply because of his sovereign grace. I think back to how the Israelites wandering in the wilderness would have received this story and what they would have gotten out of it because this boy Jacob would grow up to be a man and he would have 12 sons one of those sons would be named Joseph and, and Joseph uh, just just like uh, Jacob uh, was a favorite of his uh, his parents and because of that, his other brothers didn't like him, and so they sold him into slavery. And the slave traders ended up taking him down to Egypt, where he eventually ended up in prison. 
but through uh, an incredible sequence of events that can only be attributed to a supernatural God, this man named Joseph ends up being second in command in Egypt because Pharaoh sees that he can interpret dreams and that he was faithful and loyal as a servant. And so he rises in prominence. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, his father Jacob and all of his brothers are experiencing a great famine in their land. And so they seek refuge in Egypt and God provides for them because the brother Joseph is there. And so they settle in that land. And then over time, they begin to grow and populate and have more children. And the nation of Israel grows while they're in Egypt. And so um, the Egyptians are fearful of that. And so they turn them into slaves. And 400 years of slavery continues for the nation of Israel. And then God raises up another little Hebrew boy who ends up, by God's providence, being raised in Pharaoh's household, a man by the name of Moses. And then after uh, the, the world's most uh, rigorous leadership training progress, after 40 years in the desert, God calls this Moses to lead his children out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the Sinai Peninsula, the wilderness where that generation wanders for 40 years. Church is in that setting where the Israelites were, will have heard this story, where Moses wrote the book of Genesis and they would have encountered the story of God sovereignly choosing Jacob and not Esau. And so as they found themselves hungry and thirsty and tired and weary, not knowing what the future was going to hold for them in the wilderness as they wandered, they would be reminded that God had sovereignly chosen them out of all the nations of the earth to be his people in that time and in that place. Imagine how that would have encouraged them. Imagine how that would have built their faith. Imagine how that would have led to them to have such a greater confidence in Yahweh. Well, church, the reality is God has done the same for us. Not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that we will do, not because of anything noteworthy or meritorious about us. God has, according to his sovereign grace, chosen to rescue us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in our place. And as we find ourselves as aliens and strangers in this land, wandering in this which is now our wilderness, dealing with various challenges that we're dealing with today in this season, how encouraging it is, how humbling it is to be reminded that God has sovereignly chosen us to be his and he has given us faith to trust in Jesus Christ. I pray, church, that uh, you would be encouraged by this, that you'd be humbled by this, and that you'd be led to worship our great God and King because of this. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please know that this 
sovereign election is not based on anything that we do. I hope you hear that as good news. It's not based on how hard we try to be a good Christian. It's not based on how hard we fight against sin and, and, and try to overcome sin and temptation. It is simply based on what God has done for us in Christ. And if you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ alone to rescue you from what you deserve because of your rebellion against the Holy God, then you are His and you are part of the elect because He has given you the faith to trust in Him. Would you do that now? Let's pray. Father, I pray for the individual who may be in one of our homes, who maybe have stumbled across this link online, and they've been exposed to this good news that we can be rescued from what we deserve, not by trying to be a better person, but simply by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross for us. Father, I pray for that person right now, that in the quietness of, a, of their heart, Lord, that you would give them the faith, the trust in Christ alone to rescue them. God, would you lead them across the line of faith and make them one of yours, one of the true Israelites, one of the true descendants of Abraham, those who are his by faith. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us in Christ. We, we don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. Help us to live in light of that. Not to pay you back, but simply to live out of a, a life that's been transformed by the gospel and is grateful for what you've done for us in Jesus. Would you receive now our life of serving you as our life worship to you. May you be honored and glorified by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.